This episode is brought to you in part by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. I didn't necessarily look at a film that was quote unquote Christian based and it like made me want to be closer to God. As a matter of fact, sometimes those things can be alienating because they paint a very rosy picture of what it means to be Christian in this world, right? And I never responded to those. And I knew that me as a person who was a believer, if I didn't respond to them, how would somebody who didn't even want to hear anything about God respond to that? They want to know more so about how can you help me get a job, right? Mm -hmm. How can we deal with, again, the drugs that are just sort of surrounding our communities and taking over our communities. That's how you enter those kinds of conversations. And then from there, then we can start talking about God. But I think for me, I always knew that. I always knew that, no, people want to hear about how to be delivered from their current circumstances. This is Where You're From, an origin story podcast at the intersection of faith and culture that digs into the influences and experiences that shape who we are today. Join us as we gain insight into the Bible's wisdom for all, regardless of where we're from. Hey, y'all, this is Rasul Berry. Thanks for joining me on this special Juneteenth edition of Where You're From. I'm looking forward to sharing my conversation with the director of the Voices Juneteenth Faith and Freedom documentary, Yaki Smith. Yaki's films have received worldwide acclaim, screening and winning awards at over 100 film festivals. He has been featured on NPR, CNN, Ebony, Variety Magazine, and more. And on top of all that, he's also an associate professor of film at the University of Texas at Austin. Please join me as I ask Yaki Smith, where you're from? Yeah, I always say that I'm from San Antonio because that's where I grew up and that's the city that I remember the most. But I'm actually from and was born in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. Um, And the only reason I was there is because my dad was in the military at the time. And my first memory um, in terms of being a child that I remember is actually living in Germany. I had a birthday party there. I must have been five or six. I don't even remember how old I was. But I just vividly remember a few things. One, the double Dutch bus and then the strawberry shortcake that my mom made me. Ah, okay. That's interesting. So we, we already going international with you. It's never going to be simple with Yaki, right? <laughs> you know, so, all right, your dad was in the military, so that's why he was in Missouri, where you were yeah. born. But then shortly after that, found himself, I guess, deployed in Germany. Yeah, you know, my understanding is he was both in Germany and then... I think he was in Japan. I can't remember exactly where he was. And then he and my mom got a divorce. How old were you? You know, I actually don't remember. I was very young. I must have been like seven. Okay. Because I just remember us being back in San Antonio. Okay. Um, And honestly, I don't have many memories of my father before I was 10. Mm. I don't remember him in Germany. I don't remember him, obviously, in Fort Leonard Wood. I do not remember him until maybe I was nine or 10. Hmm. 
So you you mentioned you remember two things the double Dutch buses you call which I guess I call them double decker buses but the the bus that got the two levels on it yeah, yeah. you remember that and then the second thing is the strawberry shortcake that your mom made now it must have been some really good cake because you still remember it was she uh, tell me about your relationship with your mom yeah it's interesting because uh, like my mom raised me and my two sisters as a single mother because my dad actually went to prison. Mm. Um, while he was overseas. And once he ended up in prison, my mom was like, I'm not staying here, you know, I'm leaving. And so she went back and she came to San Antonio and brought me and my two sisters. I'm I'm the baby, I have two older sisters. And really from that point on, it was just us. Mm. You know, mom had to figure it out and we had to move in with my grandmother and my aunt at one point and... We lived with, like, other cousins, and we just kind of moved around, you know, until my mom really got her footing. And, you know, she's always been there, you know, working two and three jobs, always been a supportive parent, always been the one who really pushed my sister and I to be whatever we wanted to be. And even though there were times where I don't think my mom even realized sort of all the potential that lived in her, she made sure that we understood that about ourselves and that we always understood that there was something bigger than what we could see um, in front of us. And yeah, she pushed us hard. You know, you you either were working, you were playing sports, and I wasn't even a sports guy, so I was working, doing extracurricular activities. You know, I was in everything you could think of, you know, the quiet church. I was on the youth praise team. Um, I was in the band at school. Um, I was in the choir at school, but it was just always like, no, you are going to be something more than this. And you're not going to just sit around and do nothing because <laughs> as the old saying is, an idle mind is a devil's workshop. Right. Mm-hmm. And so she made sure that we didn't have idle minds. It created a really close bond between me, my mom and my sisters because we were all that we had. Gotcha. Gotcha. So what was it like? What was the dynamic like in terms of you being pushed by your mom? How did your sisters interact because you're, you know, you're the only boy (laughs) in the house. (laughs) What was that like? Yeah, I mean, you know, I was the baby. And for a while, they did everything for me. Mm. I can't even recall. I maybe had one or two fights in my whole life because I didn't even have to fight. My sisters were like, no, you're not doing nothing to him. Mm. Um, You got to go through me first. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, again, created a very close bond with us. Gotcha. So I don't think I've heard of a scenario where somebody who was deployed found themselves in prison overseas. (laughs) And I know about like, there's sometimes military prison, right? And like officers, was it that kind of situation or was it the actual country? And was it Germany or someplace else? I don't remember exactly where it was, but it was kind of like both. So my dad, um, now I'm telling you a lot, my dad was selling drugs while he was in the military. Mm Mm-hmm. And so my dad ended up being charged with trafficking drugs across country lines, which, again, is why my mom was like, I'm coming home. I'm not going to stay here. Right. Because right. stay here for what? Mm. Wow. So what's your earliest memories and feelings towards your dad? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, my earliest memory is literally him one day showing up to our apartment in San Antonio He stayed either the night or two nights, and then me and my sister got in the car, and we took a road trip to Cleveland, Ohio. Wow. Um, 
And it was interesting because it was like, on one hand, those were really good times. And on the other hand, they were not so good times, right? So good times because I was getting an opportunity to really learn more about my dad and spend time with my dad and have an opportunity to just sort of brush up against him in ways that I had not had the opportunity to and learn more about who he was as a person. And, you know, which is complicated because he was both a very gentle and loving father, but he could also be a brute, right? Mm. And for the first few months, it was fine. We ended up moving in with my stepmom, who's the mother of my other sister. And things were good, but you could sort of see the cracks, right? And I didn't really know what those cracks were at first, but you just knew something was off. Um, And then my dad, you know, sometimes he was just going to these, like, these rages where he would just get violent, you know, Mm -hmm. and he would put his hands on my stepmom, and, you know, that would be a big blowout, and we would have to leave with him. And I remember one night vividly, it had to be like 2 or 3 in the morning, we're sitting in the car, we're all crying because we're cold, we're in Cleveland, and they're on the phone arguing with each other. Finally, we go back. Uh, then a, another fight, we end up moving in with his other girlfriend at one point. <laughs> that was interesting, um, which caused a whole lot of other tension because my stepmom and me and my sister, we had really grown close because she had a younger son who was like now a big brother to me. My stepsister at the time, she must have been maybe a year old, if that, mm-hmm. right? She was a, she was a little baby. Um, so my sister really, you know, took a liking to her and started taking care of her, you know, as older sisters do. Um, and so we became very close. And so while we're living with this other woman, we still wanted to see her because she's the woman who we knew. Mm-hmm. She was sort of our mother away from our, our real mother. And ironically, what ends up happening is my dad ends up in jail yet again. Mm. And this is how my mom is able to get us back because it was never supposed to be permanent. At some point, he just didn't send us back. (laughs) And so my mom, (laughs) it's funny now, but it's not right. Uh, But my mom, you know, is spending a year trying to get us back and never could because he refused to send us. But when he goes to jail, well, his girlfriend is not going to take care of us. My stepmom really, it's not that she wouldn't take care of us. It was hard on her, right? She yeah. she had her own two kids. So now here's a single woman with four children. That's not going to work. And so finally that opened the door for my mom to get us back to San Antonio. And, and we did. Wow. Yeah. That is, that's a lot. <laughs> and, so you, <laughs> that's a, and so you were there in Cleveland for how long? At that? About a year and a half, two years. About, well, okay. I know as a kid, oftentimes there are things that are happening that are kind of beyond our understanding. And I know sometimes parents shield us from the full brunt and details, especially when it relates to parents. But this was, I mean, what was your mom's reaction? And did you realize that this was like, in her estimation, this was reclaiming you from, you know, a kind of a situation that she didn't want to be in or did she just kind of play it like this was all normal you know it it, we knew right the one thing my mom never did was she didn't really shelter us from a lot i'm gonna be honest okay um i knew a lot i didn't necessarily know that when i was in cleveland but when i got back and if i'd ask a question she's gonna be just open and say yeah well i've been trying to get y'all your daddy Mm -hmm. wouldn't send you back right so i knew what was happening, probably I knew too much, quite honestly. I don't feel like as a child I should have known all of the details about that stuff right. because it does sort of change 
my perception of who my father is, right? right. And for years it did this. Mm-hmm. Yet I had an understanding that I needed to know who my dad was, which is a very sort of difficult place for a child or teenager to be. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know there are things that your father gives you and teaches you, but you also know that there are things about your dad that <laughs> you may not want to emulate, right? Yeah. And it's interesting because coming back to San Antonio, I came back, this is going to sound weird, I came back to a different mom. Hmm. So I got to step back and say that when I was growing up as a youngster, we were straight up Kojic, Church of God in Christ. We were in church Monday through Sunday, vacation Bible school, Bible study, choir practice, you know, Sunday morning afternoon and evening service, the whole nine. So that's sort of what I knew. And then when I came back, my mom had kind of, you know, she was now in the streets, you know, like (laughs) carrying a gun, right, and selling drugs. So when we first got back, it was interesting because there was a, a shift in the way in which we lived. It was never like, mom was never like a a bad person in the sense of who, she, like, she loved us, right? She made sure that we had everything that we needed, and she made sure that um, we were in some way sheltered from that part of life, even though it found its way into our home, obviously, because that's what she did, mm-hmm. right? And I'll never forget there was one day where I must have been back up, maybe six months to a year, and my mom came to me, and she asked me that I know what, you know, she did, and I kind of knew, and I think I said kind of, sort of. And then she said she'd also been doing drugs. Hmm. And I'll never forget when she said that to me, it was like she started having this panic attack or some kind of psychotic break. I don't quite know what it was, but it was like she just started crying and heaving and breathing hard, and she couldn't catch her breath, and she ended up having to go to the hospital. I remember this. Hmm. And I remember waiting outside of the hospital because they wouldn't let me into the room because, you know, at that time, I think you had to be 11 or something to go inside hospital rooms. And I remember saying, no, I want to see my mom. And I think I might have snuck in the room. I don't know how I got in that room. But I just remember standing next to the bed holding her hand. And it was interesting because it was that moment where things started to shift back in the other direction, where we started going back to church again, Hmm. where... She really started getting involved in sort of trying to remove herself from certain individuals that were in her life, right? And I started to see a change happen in her, and it began to change the way in which we also moved Mm. as a family. Yeah. It also strikes me that you had the unfortunate situation of seeing both of your parents caught up in that trap and and, at different times, you know, and in different ways. Yeah, and, you know, my my dad is, again, our, our relationship is complicated because it wasn't until I was in film school in my mid-20s, early 20s, when I really, like, made the conscious sort of effort and steps to, like, repair our relationship because I just felt like there was so much mm-hmm. that had been done. You know, I have all the cliche stories that you see in every movie, but they're true, you call your dad, he says he's on his way. You wait on the steps, he never shows up. Mm. You call your dad, he's supposed to come into town. He says he's not coming in town that weekend. You cross the street to go wash your clothes, and here he is over here washing his clothes. I thought you weren't coming to town. Mm. It's very complex, right? But again, I, this is the filmmaker in me um, and the empath in me. 
it wasn't again until my early 20s where I began to try to understand who my father was. Hmm. And I began to understand that he was a broken man who not only did he not really truly understand how to be a man at that time, but of course he didn't even know how to be a father Mm. because he had never been fathered properly. He was a man who also, I think, was searching for some love and searching for a place of belonging, searching for someone to tell him that he was worthy and to unlock the potential that he had inside of him. And uh, that never happened. And so it took me years to see him in that way, but I, you know, it made me love him. Like, okay, he's a flawed human being, like mm-hmm. all of us. Mm-hmm. And he did the best with what he had at the time and, and the best that he knew how to do. And and I say that even about my mom, you know, always present, always there, but flawed, did, you know, did some stuff. But again, did, did the best right. she knew how to do with what she had at the time. And yeah, so that's how I see, I see them, you know. You know, that reminds me of the truth that we see in the scripture that we're fearfully and wonderfully made, you know, that there's a sense of God made it's all in his image. And it seems like you've been able to hold on to seeing the dignity and the imprint of God in every person, even when that reflection isn't completely clear. Like, how would you say that faith that you were steeped in become like a real personal connection and and how do you think that that did begin to shape the way that you looked at people with eyes of compassion and empathy yeah you know i'm a firm believer that once it's in you it's in you right mm-hmm. even if you spend your whole life fighting it it's still there mm-hmm. and so as flawed of a human being as i am you know i think that when i was about 12 or 13 that's when i was like okay I, i'm starting to have this dialogue and this personal relationship with God that is beyond a church, that is beyond a sermon, that is beyond even what anyone could tell me. I'll say I gave my life to Christ, I got baptized, and I begin to kind of move in a different way while also, admittedly, like still moving in that other way, still doing everything that every other kid did, Mm. you know? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I'll just say it like that. You know, if I didn't believe that there was a God, there are so many situations that for me would be completely helpless. Mm. Meaning like I would just give up and throw in the towel. Mm. But because I believe not only in a in a being bigger than me, but I believe that that being God is pulling me mm-hmm. towards an end that he has already created that I can't see. And I think if you don't have a relationship with God, that means in your mind, you control everything. And if I thought I controlled it all, I don't know. I'd just be like, this ain't working. Mm. I've seen it too many times that the thing that I thought was going to destroy me was actually the thing that God used to glorify mm. me. Was the thing that God used to allow me to walk in certain rooms where I don't even feel like I am qualified to be in those rooms. But because of the lesson that I learned via that suffering, via that mistake, via that disappointment, via that closed door. I think all of those things that we experience prepare us mm-hmm. if we allow them to. That's the thing. They can either sink you or make you fly. And I've always said everything that I endure will make me fly in some way. It's just building my wings. Mm-hmm. No, that's, that's beautiful. So speaking of that, you mentioned early on 
knowing that you were exposed to a lot. Mom didn't want, you know, idleness, wanted to keep you busy. And that there were aspects of like sports that were like, eh, this isn't my thing. But it seemed like the creativity, you know, uh, was when did you start to realize that that was your lane, that, that I, I have artistry in me? And how did that unfold? Why, you know, you were maybe in middle school, or high school? Yeah. So have always known that. Right. It's interesting when I would get into the sports, it was me trying to fit into somebody else's idea of who, you know, this is what a boy is supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm going to play football. I'm going to, you know, do the side. I'm going to do all of these things because this is what I thought I was supposed to be doing. But in the background always was art. Ever since I can remember, I've been creating something. This would be a poem. This would be me jotting down like ideas for plays, uh, me writing log lines for films, me watching people and, and writing down, you know, whatever it is that they're saying, because I know at some point I'm going to use it as a line of dialogue or it's going to inspire a story. I'll never forget that when I was 11, I saw Boys in the Hood, and that's when I was like, okay, I want to do this. How does one become a movie director? And I started researching. I would lock myself up in the library. I would watch as many movies as I could, because that was the time we could go in and you know, you rented your VHSs from the library or whatever for three days, and I would take five or six, and on the weekend, I would just watch them and, like, study them. Okay, how do they do that? And what's what's this shot? And just trying to figure this stuff out and reading about it and then starting to read about Spike Lee more and understanding who he was and, and then, again, going back and starting to learn about, okay, oh, this is how you write a screenplay. Oh, that, that thing I've been writing, that's not how you do a play, right? So just I started to fill myself up with filmmaking and just – a love of film because I realized that when I saw Boys in the Hood that there was power in the moving image that there was the ability to sort of create worlds that were both real and fantastical at the same time hmm. that there was the ability to create conversa- critical conversations and to build bridges and to get folks who may would not have otherwise ever talked to each other or seen into each other's world, the film allowed them to do that and to see the humanity in those people. And then I started trying to figure out, okay, where do I get a camera from? And I ended up in a communication arts magnet high school. And I made my first movie when I was 14, 15, and I've been making movies ever since. Okay. So, I mean, 14, 15, making a film, in what context? At school or someplace out of school? Yeah. In school. So, you know, I was admitted into this communication arts program, and it was all about, like, basically broadcast news journalism. Right. And so I took the the news class where we, every morning, we produced a news show that was uh, basically the morning announcement. Mm -hmm. And so instead of... The counselor doing the intercom announcements, it was now me. I was the newscaster. <laughs> so I'm the, hey, what's up? You know, this is Jaquie. So today, at, you know, we got a bake sale. Cookies, 25 cents. You know, tomorrow is the big game. Make sure you get your tickets, whatever it may be. And so I did that. And it just so happened that the woman who taught the class was actually also the theater teacher. <laughs> and so I think she had dabbled in film. And she's the one who actually gave me my first like real screenwriting but before then I had dabbled in it and it didn't really you know try to understand it but she actually handed me my first screenwriting book and that's when I really understood how to write a screenplay 
And so I started writing these stories, and then one day I went to her and I said, hey, so look, I had this idea for a movie. I would love to be able to take the cameras home over the weekend, um, and I'm going to get my, my friends over, and we're going to make this movie. And I'll never forget this. She said to me, she said, well, Dwayne, um, you know we're not allowed to let students take the cameras home. And she's telling me this as she's pulling out the camera cases. And she says, but I'm about to go, you know, on my lunch break. Um, and, you know, I don't know what's going to happen over the weekend, but when I get in here at 9 a.m. on Monday, you know, if everything's here, then I, I won't know what, what occurred. And she walked out. <laughs> and I packed those cameras up, and I took them home, and I shot a movie that weekend. My mom made us. She was our craft services person. She made us spaghetti. <laughs> Went to the store, got us all the drinks we needed. It was like a boot camp. All my friends spent the weekend there. You know, we slept there. And I had these ideas where, like, it wasn't even a real, like, full screenplay. It was more like an outline where I would say, all right, Rasu, so the scene, what's happening in this scene is you come home and you get into an argument with your, your wife and then you get mad and you pack your stuff and you leave. No dialogue. And so I would just say, and action. And then they would just improvise. And that was the movie. So I made a film, and I, I would make VHS copies and pass them around. School, I bootlegged my first movie, my own movie. And I would basically give it to everybody. You take it home this weekend. You take it home tonight. Make sure you I only got five copies, so please make sure I get them back. And I became, like, the filmmaker. So I started, you know, filming everything, the, the proms, the this, the that, you know, because I was the filmmaker. So what was the name of the film? A Cry for Help. A Cry for Help. And it literally was about a young lady who... She leaves her house. She gets mad at her mom. She's like, I'm grown. I'm going to do what I want to do. She moves in with her boyfriend. She ends up getting pregnant by my man. And then he's like, I ain't signing up for this. Mm. And he leaves her high and dry. So now she has to go back home. Mm. So that's the whole movie. So even then, I was making these like socially conscious, you know, sociopolitical films as a teenager. Because again, Boys in the Hood, that's what it was. Mm. And so I wanted to make that movie. Wow. Yeah. And what was the reception like and how did that influence you or impact you? Oh, people loved it and actually they all wanted to be in the films. So when are you going to cast me in a movie? Can I sing in the movie? And so again, the crews got much bigger. People started to come over and they wanted to help with lighting and they wanted to help with the microphone and, and all of that. And it's interesting because that's where I met I, I call him my brother, uh, Ralph, who was my producing partner for many years. But we were the first to really start making films at our high school. Mm. And from there, again, it just got bigger and bigger. We started winning like city competitions for PSAs that we would make. So it, it, was a, it was a huge response. So what role do you think the community played in your development as an artist? Yeah, I think the community played a huge role um, because I think without their support, not saying I would not have done it because I would have, but I think without the support, it would have made it even more difficult. I don't think I would have realized that it was a thing that was tangible, mm -hmm. right? Because no matter how determined you are, if you never have the opportunity to showcase your talent, to put that talent to work, it can devastate you because then you start to think that it's just a pipe dream. Right. Right. And there is no outlet or there is no way that it's ever going to happen. But I think the fact, again, that the community made sure that I had the resources that I needed when I needed them, it kept me going. 
So tell me a little bit more about the east side of San Antonio. And of course, we talk about Texas. Just paint a picture for us. I love growing up on the east side. You know, again, that's where I found my first sense of stories to tell, right? The people that I was around, the people who, you know, I was exposed to, like they were the characters of my first films. But it was a pretty violent place as well. You know, shootouts at the school, gang fights in the school, having to duck behind trash cans when you get off the bus. There was an incident, I forget how old I was, but we were all in the house. My cousins actually were visiting from Houston and we're in the house playing video games or whatever. And you just hear pop, 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 pop. And they're coming across because we lived in the very front of the projects at that time. And they shoot through the window, the bullet uh, ricochets through the air. It grazes me, actually. I'm on the ground thinking I'm shot. It was, it's actually funny now. I can laugh at it because I'm shot. It, wasn't a, it was just a bullet that grazed me. <laughs> the bullet had grazed me. I wasn't really shot shot. But my point in saying that is that, like, San Antonio, we had our time where it was it was very dangerous. Mm. Um, and so that's what San Antonio was at that time. But also it was again, it was a place where, you know, you you found community, right? Where you had your first, you know, loves in East San Antonio. You know, you got you got my grandmother. We lived with my grandmother at the time, you know, the the love of a grandmother, um, the love of community. And the schools, it's interesting because on one hand, the schools weren't great, but I ended up in that, that, that magnet school, which was on the east side, and it was like we were getting a private school education within a public school setting. Hmm. On one hand, it, it was a, a place where you could fear, but on the other hand, it was a place where I had such great joy and I learned so much being in that space. So is it true that, would you say a significant amount of the African-American population in San Antonio was there because of the military? Or is it just a mixture? It was a mixture. It was yeah. a mixture. I mean, obviously, it's a big military town, but it, it was still a mixture. You right. know, you had, it's interesting because San Antonio is a predominantly like Latinx space. Yep. A lot of people from Mexico, Mexican space. But you have black people who come from some of the smaller surrounding cities mm. and they end up sort of migrating to places again like Houston or San Antonio. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how my family ended up there. Right. So you start making films in high school. You have the support of this, you know, East San Antonio community. And how did your faith in art intersect? Yeah, honestly, I don't know if I was consciously thinking about the ways in which faith and art were integrated at that time. I think I was just making films from the point of view of wanting to save people. And I don't mean save in the sense of church, but save people out of certain circumstances. Right and free them out of, you know, whatever bondage they found themselves Mm. in. Mm. Um, And so maybe that was the integration that I wasn't really conscious of, right? Yeah. But that was always my mission and mantra, and still is today, with film. And so, yeah, that was that faith integrating, but I don't think I was conscious about that. Yeah, I think that this is a a significant conversation that oftentimes happens and sometimes gets uh, derailed in church spaces and talking about art because... There's a tendency among some to have a very prescriptive version of what it means to use art to uh, communicate messages of truth. And because it's so narrow, it ends up usually sounding very, quote unquote, religious or very, quote unquote, Christian. And there becomes this artificial divide that's created from what does it mean to tell a compelling story to what does it mean to tell a compelling Christian story? And it sounds like you just never had to create or find yourself in that 
false dichotomy. So you just kind of were making stories that to you, it was all coming out of the same well. Yeah, because I found, to your point, I found those narratives ineffective, honestly. Mm. <laughs> I didn't necessarily look at a film that was quote unquote Christian based and it like made me want to be closer to God. As a matter of fact, sometimes those things can be alienating because they paint a very rosy picture of what it means to be Christian in this world, right? Mm. And I never responded to those. And I knew that me as a person who was a believer, if I didn't respond to them, how would somebody who didn't even want to hear anything about God respond to that? Mm -hmm. They want to know more so about how can you help me get a job, right? Mm -hmm. How can we deal with, again, the drugs that are just sort of surrounding our communities and taking over our communities? That's how you enter those kinds of conversations. And then from there, then we can start talking about God, but I think for me, I always knew that. I always knew that. Nah, people want to hear about how to be delivered from their current circumstances. When we come back, Yaki will tell us about how college was truly a different world and one that he struggled to find his place in as a young black filmmaker. That's coming up next on Where You're From. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu slash admit. Hey, y'all. Thanks so much for listening to this special Juneteenth episode with Yaki Smith. If you're enjoying where you're from, would you take a moment, write a quick review and give us some stars? Podcast platforms like Apple, YouTube and Spotify promote highly rated shows. So a one sentence review of what this episode or show means to you and a quick five star rating will help these important stories reach more people. Thank you for your help. Now, let's get back into our conversation with Yaki on where you're from. So what's the next step for you? Is it college? And if so, how did you decide where you were going to go? Yeah, it, it, it is college. And how did I decide where I was going to go is interesting because, of course, once I got the filmmaking bug and at 11 and I started really like looking at more of John's work and Spike's work, then, of course, the only three places that you should be going is either UCLA, USC, or NYU. Mm-hmm. And so that's where I wanted to go. And so I actually was accepted into UCLA as an undergrad. I also was accepted into every Texas university because we still, we, it used to be the 10% rule. Now it's like 7% or 6%. If you're in the top 6% of your class, you're automatically admitted into all Texas universities. And at that time it was 10%. So I was accepted even here at UT and, you know, all these places. But when we start looking at the financial packages, mm. It was like, man, like, okay, we'll give you, you know, the first semester fully paid, but after that, it's going to all be loans. And then you're talking about, you know, $15,000 loans a semester or a year. That Like, it was just, we didn't see that. Now, I was still thinking about it, but we just didn't see how that was going to happen. And I'll never forget, I have to go back and tell another story before I talk about this. My mom was a substitute teacher at my high school, so Mm. she was there almost every day. And they had the scholarship resource office. And what they would do is they would come in and they would cherry pick certain students 
who they already saw as being successful, and they would bring those students in and have them apply for certain scholarships. <laughs> wow. Well, my mama wasn't having that. If there's a scholarship, he will be applying for it. It ain't about you as a resource officer deciding that only these three students. So my mama made sure I was in that resource office. She would come get me out of class. We need to go over to the resource office. I'm walking you over here now. They got this Coca-Cola scholarship. I need you to apply. There was a scholarship full ride to Dilla University. I need you to apply, right? So I ended up applying to uh, the University of the Incarnate Word, and they had this scholarship through the radio station at the time. And they was basically going to pay for everything. The only thing I had to pay for in undergrad, I had to pay for my books and I believe my meal plan, but everything else was covered. And this is a private school. So at that time, I think tuition was 5000 a semester, something like that. I can't remember exactly how much it was. So I got the scholarship. So now here we are looking at Incarnate Word. And I'm just like, what? Incarnate Word? That, that never, ever once crossed my mind as an option as a college that I want to go to. I only apply because mama pulled me out of class and said, you're applying for this scholarship there. And I got it. So we're sitting there and we're looking. And uh, I'll never forget. She's like, all right, Yaki, I know what you want. Let's pray about it. So we stood in the circle. We prayed about it. And she just said, look, you know, think about this. This place is literally offering you a free education. Right. These other places, yeah, it may be putting you in L.A. or New York, but like, one, I I can't really help you financially with this. Mm-hmm. Daddy can't really help you financially with this. It's going to be a bunch of loans, and you're going to find yourself with, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars of student loans. Mm-hmm. So really think about it. I thought about it. I went into it to school. They had a communication arts program, obviously. They didn't have a lot of film, but they were like, you know, you could come in, and if you want to do film, you can. And I was like, okay, okay. And that's where I went. I hated it the first year. I'm going to be crass for a second, but I'd never been around that many white people. Mm-hmm. Um, just quite honestly. And <laughs> my perception of white people at the time was not a good one. I'm going to be mm-hmm. honest. Mm-hmm. Because I hadn't really held space mm-hmm. with them in that way. And so here I am now in this predominantly white institution as a very radical black man, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> got there, did not like it. Had support, though. The teachers, like, all the teachers were like, you talented. I remember I did this spec commercial for, I think it was for peanut butter or something. And my my teacher was like, you need to just go ahead and make that commercial. This is amazing, you know. But it was like, that wasn't what I wanted. I didn't necessarily want to go into news. Right. And I'll never forget what changed me. It must have been the second semester of my first year, or maybe the first semester of my second year, they hired a new professor. And so when you get hired at a university, they bring in three finalists, right? I've been through this rigmarole several times. You bring in three finalists, and each of them have to do a job talk and a teaching demo. And this woman, who's become like a godmother to me now, Dora Fitzgerald, never forget, she comes in, she does this lecture, and she's talking about like international cinema, she's talking about race and cinema. She went to Columbia. She graduated at the same time that Spike graduated from NYU. So, I mean, encyclopedic knowledge of film theory and criticism and the ways in which the moving image not only is put together in terms of its artifice, but also the ways in which it impacts people when they watch it and how you can construct a narrative in a certain way Mm -hmm. to get a certain impact. Right. And uh, I was like, okay. Hire her tomorrow. You know what I mean? Like, because they asked the students, so what did you think? I'm like, that's the woman y'all need to hire, selfishly, because I want to work with her. 
Right. Next semester, she was there, and she again, she became like my mother at school. Mm-hmm. She would bring me lunch sometimes. She'd have you know extra Sunday dinner. She'd like, I'll bring you some, and I, we would sit there, and I became her teaching assistant. And anyway, she's the one who really ushered me through in Carnival, where so many others did, too. I was a big NAS scholar. I have to shout them out. Um, Roberta was great. Gabby was great. Kathy was great. All of these people who really made sure that Yaki um, was going to be successful in what Yaki wanted to do. Wow. Wow. So it sounds like a rough start, but then, you know, through that connection, you know, with Professor Fitzgerald and others, you, you kind of hit your stride. So you ended up finishing there. I did. And it's interesting because like kind of circling back to something we said earlier, it you know, it was really like that utterance from God, like, no, this is where you need to go. And again, and again, you get there and you don't understand it. It makes no sense. Mm. But that's sort of how God works. He puts you in these weird places and you're like, what is this? This ain't what I signed up for. But it, it, when you stick with it, you realize, no, there's something there's something there. And she was she was that thing. Mm. So, yeah, I made maybe three or four films while I was there because I kept making movies. Me and Ralph kept making movies together because he was working for a local production company at that time. And on the weekends, whenever I had school projects, he was coming and shooting those projects for me. When uh, Fitzgerald started offering these film classes, we were now able to, instead of writing papers, we were able to actually make films as our final projects. And so I started just, that's what I just started doing. And I would write the papers for extra credit, but make the films for my main grade. It was maybe my junior year where I was like, okay, I think I want to go to film school. Hmm. Right? I still want to go, even though I'm making films here, I still don't know enough. Right? And so I started applying to everywhere again, UCLA, NYU, Columbia, all of them. Visited a lot of those places, didn't necessarily vibe with the place because it, you know, I felt like some of them were more geared toward like studio filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And I knew that I wasn't necessarily a studio filmmaker. I didn't want to, you know, just get into the cycle of making the same kind of movie. I wanted to kind of make the movies that I was passionate about. I'm not saying I won't make studio movies now, but I can come at them from a different angle. And so, again, applied to everywhere. UT was one of my spaces. I came to visit it. And when I got here, I just felt a, I don't know, a good vibe, you know, like, okay, this, they're going to teach me how to be a independent filmmaker, mm-hmm. right? Um, they're going to teach me that if I don't have the support of, you know, an investor or whatever, that I can maybe go out and raise my own money or I could learn how to do a lot with the little, which I'm really good at doing. And so that's how I ended up here at UT for grad school. Okay. So you're there and you're still there as a professor. So like <laughs> how long was the program and what would you say was like your first big, like legit film? Yeah. You know, the way this program is structured, it's a three-year program. And while you're here, you make at least, and I have to say at least because you can also get into classes where you make more, but you make at least four projects. Mm. You make a documentary your first semester, a narrative film your second semester, and then your second and third year, you decide, but these are like more substantial works, but you decide what they're going to be. They can be animation, they can be installation pieces, documentaries, narratives, whatever you want to do. And, you know, my second year, it's time for me to make my pre-thesis, and that's when we're in the height of the war in Iraq, and I'm just watching all of this stuff go down. And I'm starting to hear these stories about, you know, men and women coming back from war completely messed up from PTSD. 
because you're plucking people out of high school, sometimes these suburban high schools where they haven't seen anything, and then literally you're putting a gun in their hands and they out there seeing people die next to them. And so I said, I want to make a movie about them. So my first film that became, you know, quote-unquote big hit is a film called Hope's War about a soldier who comes back from Iraq. And when he comes back, a friendship that he had for a long time, he worked in a store, and the guy who owned the store was Iraqi, and the guy became like a, you know, godfather to him. But when he comes back, he can't see the guy the same because of the trauma of war at that time. Mm. Um, and so you see how their relationship is completely fractured because of his time in war. And that film, interestingly enough, <laughs> uh, quite honestly, I was told, why do you want to make a film about the war while we're in the middle of the war? Like this film, you know, make a short comedy, you know, because five to seven minute comedies, they do well at film festivals. They're crowd pleasers. Make that movie. And again, being me, I was like, no, I'm not making that movie. I'm making this movie. <laughs> and I made that film. I'll never forget. We shot it in November of 2004. And we ended up on Showtime February of 2005, won the DGA Award in November of 2005, screened at the Cannes Film Festival. All of this stuff happened with this one film. Wow. And it's interesting because that film then sort of, I hate to say puts me on the map, but people now start to know who Yaki Smith is in terms of being a filmmaker. And uh, from then, I just, I kept making, you know, these successful Short. And that leads us to how we met. So about a, <laughs> a little over a year ago, Our Daily Bread was looking to make this film Juneteenth and was looking for a director. And I saw Miss Joyce, shout out to Miss Joyce, uh, sh share with me, well, you know, Yaki is a filmmaker. I, we had created a Juneteenth devotional and yours really arrested my attention because it talked about the moments of how much Juneteenth meant to you growing up. So I want to just let other people hear that. Like, what was the significance of Juneteenth for you growing up? What do you remember about that time? Yeah, I mean, Juneteenth has always been a day that not only did we celebrate, but we remembered, right? Mm -hmm. And I say that because we would have our family reunions centered around Juneteenth for a season. Because my uncle, one, believed in several things. One, he believed in family getting together, but he also believed in family legacy. And Juneteenth becomes a part of that legacy. So he would, in many ways, this is a picture of your great-great-grandmother, and your great-great-great-grandmother was Native American. And, you know, so we, we understood our family lineage because of him, because he wanted us to know. And doing this on Juneteenth and also celebrating the emancipation of enslaved people in Texas becomes a part of the, that family narrative, becomes a part of that family story. And so it's always played a huge role in my life. And, you know, not only were there family reunions, but again, there were parades, there were picnics. It was just a huge celebration that we would have because I think we understood that while Fourth of July is a significant day, quite honestly, Juneteenth is much more significant to us as black people. And why would we go out and pop these fireworks on July 4th and not do the same on Juneteenth when, in fact, Juneteenth is the day that we were, you know, set free in this state? 
So it's meant a lot to me and it still means a lot to me. Okay, so how did your family celebrate? Like, what were some of the basics? Like, you mentioned fireworks, which most people associate with July 4th or turkey for Thanksgiving. What were like the essentials that were part of a Juneteenth celebration? Oh, first of all, barbecue, right? <laughs> the pit is going. Um, big Red, you know, I don't even like Big Red Soda, but we drinking our Big Red Soda. Every kind of dessert you can think of, right? From from socket to me cake, to Neiman Marcus cake, to peach cobbler, to all of it. Um, and then, you know, that was the day where we could just eat as much junk food as we wanted. <laughs> Drink as many sodas as you wanted. And then I just remember, you know, again, spending time with my cousin. So my, my uncle has a huge backyard, so we'd be back there you know, doing water fights, water balloons, you know, throwing the football around or whatever, wrestling around with each other. It was just all of that. Hmm. Nah, that sounds that sounds really uh, like a sweet time. And it also had spiritual significance. I, I'll just quote you in the devotional that you wrote. You said, I had to look back on history before Juneteenth to understand the enslaved had long been fighting for freedom physically through uprisings and escape, and spiritually. God wasn't a faraway entity that they heard about. God was with them, living in them, giving them peace that transcends all understanding and helping them. Unpack that a little bit more, like (laughs) how you combine all those things together. Yeah, I mean, we don't talk about this enough. I know in this day and age, a lot of people are like stepping away from the church and, Mm. you know, and and I'll say this, some some rightfully so, because the, the institution that I grew up in is not necessarily the same as the some of the institutions that we're right. seeing now. Right. And I have to say that because I think what we need to, though, remember is that it was faith, quite honestly, that got these individuals through their day-to-day life and made them continue to see freedom on the horizon, even when they were physically in bondage. Mm. If they did not have that faith in God, if they did not have that belief that one day they would be set free, that one day they would taste the freedoms that they had uh, in their home country, right, then they never would have fought physically Mm. because you're not going to fight a fight if you don't believe you can win it. But there's something inside of you that's telling you, no, 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 I'm going to battle for my freedom Mm. because God is with me, right? Yeah. And so I think for me, it was just like we always understood that those two things were intertwined, right? You can't talk about one without the other. You can't mm-hmm. talk about, again, Juneteenth without talking about, like, the religious aspect mm-hmm. and talking about, the, again, the ways in which faith not only played a part, you know, during slavery, post-slavery, but even when you think about the civil rights movement, most of these meetings that we had to strategize were happening in churches mm-hmm. because that was the place where we felt safe, where we felt that we could strategize, but that's the place where we really, really felt the utterance of God, not only speaking to us and through us, but we felt his strength giving us the ability to go out and fight these fights. Mm -hmm. And so Juneteenth will always be intricately like, you know, connected to faith and to God and Mm -hmm. to this notion of what it means to not only be physically free, but spiritually free, because that's the thing. In order to taste freedom, you got to visualize it first. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's so good. So what was your impression when you first got this invitation or opportunity for Our Daily Bread to do a Juneteenth film? Honest. It's done now. You know so my you honest? Can... Yes. Oh, okay. Look, I used to read Our Daily Bread <laughs> as a child, right? Even in the college I was reading it. But I'll, I'll say this. I like 
there's a moment where I just stopped because I started to feel as though they weren't speaking to my unique experience as a black Christian in America, Hmm. right? Because there is the difference between painting the rosy picture, right? Or even talking about deliverance on a certain level without really, again, unpacking the ways in which black people in this country have been dehumanized, have been put down, have had every roadblock that you can think of put in our way, have had our communities burned to the ground by those who have claimed to be Christians, mm. right? And so quite honestly, when Miss when Joyce even came to me first about the devotional, I was like, J- I, they, they doing a Juneteenth devotional? Okay, all right, let me, let me, let me figure out what they want. Quite honestly, when I first talked to you, I was still a little hesitant. Maybe you probably even understood that because I was like, now, what kind of movie are we going to be making? Now, if this is just all about like freedom and we're going to hold hands and, and you know, everybody going to be singing, I'm not interested in that story. What I am interested in is telling a story about the true history of slavery and the true ways in which religion um, and bondage literally have been connected Mm-hmm. Right. For black people in this country forever and ever. And once you broke that down to me. Right. I was like, let's do it. Mm-hmm. Because one, I felt like a Juneteenth film needed to be made years ago. Right. A one that really was significant and really, really sort of charted the true history of how we ended up where we are today. And I felt like with the proper resources, with the proper team, that we could make something that could be beautiful and that could really like even transcend you know, the idea of the church, right? Like there are people who will watch this film who may not even be Christians, but they're going to still get something out of it because they also understand what it means to be free and what it means to be in bondage. And so at first I was hesitant, but then you put me at ease. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> yeah, I remember the hesitation and and and, and understood um, why. But like, as we went into that process, it was very clear that from our standpoint, it was so important to have someone who was raised with this story of Juneteenth and felt it, not just knew about it, but felt it in their bones. And so uh, it was pretty exciting. So I'm curious for you, like, what was it like making the film, you know, as a native son of Texas, telling that story that had now become a national story? Yeah, I mean... It's interesting because there's one moment in particular that I'll never forget as we were filming. Um, And I have, again, basically lived here my whole life, but I actually have never been on a slave plantation before. Mm -hmm. Quite honestly, I don't don't know if I had a desire to go to one. (laughs) And so when we drove up to the plantation, I, I, I honestly started to feel slightly uneasy. And then when I started to walk in front of the, the sort of big house or whatever, um, and those trees <laughs> all around me, all I could see, honestly, I could just see dead black bodies hanging hmm. from these trees. And it shook me for a minute. And then as I'm walking, I could just feel the weight of what these individuals had endured to keep this place pristine. The fact that that house is still there, hmm. right? Yet the houses that they lived in Basically, the wind and rain have just washed it away. That lets you know the amount of care that they had to put into building a space for the person who had them in bondage, right? Mm. And the skills that they had to possess in order to do that. And so being there, it was like, man, I I feel 
conflicted because on one hand, I'm not sure if I'm worthy, quite honestly, because this is so weighty. Yet, I felt so worthy at the same time because I'm like, finally, I'm exhuming this narrative. Finally, I'm telling their story from a different point of view. I'm here with a camera talking to a historian who really understands this deep history of what happened on Varna Hawk Plantation. And because um, on one hand, I went in, as I do with every project, slightly afraid because I wanted to make sure that I was honoring not only those who were enslaved, but honoring even my people today that I'm telling a story that Texans could be proud of, that when they watched it, they understood that we had done thorough research and that we had taken our time and put in great care to tell a story that would honor them, that would honor their ancestors. And again, that would exhume these histories that in many ways have been misrepresented for many years. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, I had so many emotions going into it, but I'm so I'm so glad that I answered the call because this film has impacted me in in ways that I didn't think that it would. Even watching it, you know, going to the festivals and watching it over and over again, I'm like, we did a good job on this, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't mean good job in terms of it looks beautiful and I think it's very artistic, but we really, we told this story very thoroughly, mm-hmm. right? And we told the ugly truth at times. And the fact that we were able to do that, it makes me just very proud to have played a, a part in making it happen. Yeah, I... um well, you know, I, I can share that sentiment with you and feeling that sense of pride and just wanting to get the story right. And I think it was for me when um, we were invited to the Dallas International Film Festival, you know, a festival in which you've won an award, actually, for Wolf. And then they wanted us to be screened first because that was like the start to the festival. That was like a unique sense of joy for me because it's like that's Texans saying we we want to celebrate and exalt this film. I'm curious about what's it been like to hear the individual or personal reception or feedback to the film? Yeah, it's interesting because being, for example, when we had that party for uh, Miss Opal Lee and having the opportunity to talk to her granddaughters and her daughters and her nieces, that means a lot because they feel as though we've not only just honored her, but again, we've honored the people of Texas and that we've made them proud. And hearing that sentiment, not only there, but then being in Milwaukee and finding out that they have one of the largest Juneteenth celebrations in the country, which I had no idea. The one woman who started their celebrations, I think 52 years ago, she comes up to me and she says, I learned some stuff today. Mm. She said, I thought I knew everything about Juneteenth, but you taught me some stuff today. Right? That, again, that that means a lot because it means that we took our time, and even though it was it was a fast shoot, we we still were thorough, and we made sure that we hit all of the right notes mm. to tell a very well-rounded and multidimensional story, and to hear that people are receiving it um, in that way. Again, it just, it, it means the world. Yeah, no, that's great. So I'm kind of curious for you, like as someone who grew up with this story, and those who might be listening that are not from Texas, like, what do you want people to think about, to reflect on, and even, you know, celebrate? you know, when Juneteenth comes around? Yeah, I mean, first, I want people to really, like, step back and understand what it means to be in bondage or what it meant. Because I think Mm -hmm. that's important, because Juneteenth really has no significance unless you actually know, as you say, well, what were they freed from? Mm -hmm. 
Right. And so I think if nothing else, first and foremost, when people watch the film, we teach you some history there, but I want you to go back and really research more of this history. So, again, you understand what your people endured or what your people made my people endure. Right. <laughs> right. I really want you to, to, to understand that. Right. And to go back and become a student of this holiday, not just go out and get a T-shirt, not just go to the parade not just come in and watch the film and then walk away, you know, unchanged. No, no, no. I want you to really go out and I want to send you on a journey of discovery for yourself. I hope you will go and visit that plantation. Hmm. I hope you will go down and find Sharon and and learn more information from her, right? Because there's so much, obviously, that we couldn't get in the film. Um, So I, I want that. I also, you know, I want people to understand how resilient how resilient black people had to be in order to survive after slavery. The fact that Jackie Yates, right, goes into Houston and literally starts a whole community, schools, churches, businesses, all of these things as a former slave, Mm -hmm. that's resilient, right? That's somebody who understood that they had the power to create the world that they wanted to see within them. It was always residing in them. Mm -hmm. They just needed to be set free to do it. Mm-hmm. And I hope that when people leave the film, that they understand that anything, anything that they want to do, that they can make it happen. You just got to be resilient. You got to work for it. And you got to fight against all of the powers that are coming against you because so many things will start to come against. I really want anyone who's a school teacher, K through 12, I know we want this in universities, but I, I want them to see this film and then go back to their school districts and say, we have to find a way to get this movie in our classrooms. Mm. This film, a piece like this, is critical during this time because it is so critical that students begin to learn this history early on. That's a good word. So speaking of the next generation and fathers teaching sons, you're now a father. I am. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me a little bit about that and who you have the opportunity to father. (laughs) (laughs) You look, it, it's interesting because I never, and he's going to hear this when he grows up, but I'll tell him anyway. I've ne- I never wanted kids. Mm-hmm. So me and Michaela, my wife, we've been together 23 years, married 18. Mm-hmm. He's seven. So that lets you know how long we waited because it, it was unexpected. And now I can't honestly imagine my life without him mm-hmm. because he is such a reflection of me. He is such a a sponge, right? And I just love being able to impart all these things on him. Like, for example, where you want to go for spring break? Most kids, they want to go to Disney. I told him wherever he wants to go. He wants to go to Atlanta, where we went. Just got back because he wants to visit Martin Luther King's crypt. He wants to visit the museum. He wants to know where he works, right, his church. And he Mm. wants to see his house. And so we spent majority of our time doing that in Atlanta. Wow. At seven years old, because that's what he wants. Um, and he already has a desire to learn about black history. And um, yeah, man, it's been it's been amazing. It's challenging, too. Right. Because, you know, I direct television. So sometimes I'm gone for two months. Mm-hmm. I'm living in New Orleans. I'm in Atlanta, wherever it may be. And that gets difficult. Right. Because me and the wife, you know, we're a partnership. We do things together. But sometimes, you know, she has to take on more of that burden. And so it does get a little difficult, but we found a workaround that works for us. Hmm. You know, I think he's also, as Ernest Dickinson said this to me, kids bring blessings, and he's right. Hmm. 
because I thought having a kid would actually stop me from being able to have these opportunities, Mm -hmm. that I wouldn't be able to direct TV, that I wouldn't have the time to make another feature, that I wouldn't be making a Juneteenth film. How am I going to do that, right? But quite honestly, every time I see him and when I say to him, you can be whatever you want to be, you just have to work hard, it reminds me of the same thing. That, yeah, it might get difficult and, and you know, you, some things have to be maneuvered and you may not be able to, you know, do it the way that you did it 10 years ago. But guess what? It can be done if you want it. Mm-hmm. And there's no way that I can look him in his eyes at night and tell him that. And then I turn around and stop doing what it is mm-hmm. that I know I've been put on the earth to do. So it's been great, man. It's been, it's, and I'm learning, right? Because, again, I didn't really have my father in my life. So that was another one of my sort of hesitations, right, uh, that I was like, uh, I don't even know if I know how to be a daddy. Mm-hmm. And so it's a learning curve. You learn every day. You mess up. But he teaches me. Got it. So you mentioned briefly that you did re-engage with your father in your 20s later on in life. I'm curious, what was that like? And have you ever interacted around your films? Oh, um, I'm going to answer the second question first. So I was screening in um, Arkansas. My dad lives in Arkansas. And this is when Hope's War was, you know, doing its thing. And I was screening Hope's War. And I'll never forget, it was Dark Theater. And I'm here. There's a chair between me and my dad. And I look over, and he's having this very visceral reaction to the movie. And I'm like, you good? You know? Um, I'm like, I know it's a good movie, but you having like a breakdown over here. And that might have been the first time I heard this story. And maybe, yeah, I wasn't even conscious of it. My dad's brother was in Vietnam. Mm. And he came back with PTSD. And he goes on local TV as they're doing the news. And he commits suicide. Mm. And my film culminates. It ends with the tragic suicide of this soldier in front of this man who was like a father figure to him. Mm. And my dad is like, did you even know that? And I'm like, no, I didn't even, I hadn't, I don't think I'd heard that story. And he was just like, the fact that you made a film in some ways about my brother's struggle, (laughs) you know, Mm. um, has really sort of, again, let me know that you're working on another level, right? You're dealing with something that is even beyond yourself. Mm. And since then, he's come to like, whenever I'm in Little Rock or if he's here in San Antonio or whatever, and I'm screening something, he'll come. Because he loves seeing my work, you know. He loves, like, that's my son, you know. He did that. And it's interesting because I think our relationship has just evolved. We don't, like, talk every day. We may not, we, I may only talk to my dad every few months. We may text more than we talk. But I think that the conversation that we had when I was there actually screening that, um, that's the first time I, you know, I really ever said to him, like, look, it, it was hard. And I've, I've held this resentment towards you. And my dad... In his own way, he doesn't know how to apologize. He'll say something like, yeah, I know, I know. You know, Mm. and I understand that that's him sort of receiving what it is that I'm saying. I wrote an op-ed, it must have been 2018, and I think the title was, How Do You Become a Father If You Never Had One? Mm. And I talk very explicitly about my relationship with my son and also about my relationship with my father. And I'll never forget, he called me in the middle of the night. Because it came out online before it went to print. So it was like Sunday morning, like 4 a.m., he calls me. And he's crying on the phone. And he's basically like, you know, again, in his own way, I I apologize Mm. 
for, you know, all of the ways in which I've neglected being a father. Mm. And he's like, it was really hard. I don't think my dad ever, he doesn't even know who his father is. Mm. Um, So he never met his dad. Um, And then, you know, his big brother became like a quasi father to him. That's how he ended up in the military and all that. And then his brother, you know, offs himself. Mm. And so it's, you know, again, our relationship is, it ain't like we buddy, buddy, but again, I understand him more. And I think we can now talk on the phone. We can now text with each other and we can now be civil around each other. Mm. This is something that I learned a long time ago. I think I probably learned in my early twenties. When you hold resentment against somebody, you're really holding yourself back because that person may have moved on. That person may have, you know, forgotten about the thing they did for you, but you still upset about a thing that's causing a cancer in your own body. Mm. And so I had to release him in order to release myself. As you told that story, I just got chills because you told the truth about the pain and the past. And that telling the truth, that truth telling opened the door for a type of transformation of the offender's heart which previously hadn't been there but in even when those two things happen what do you decide to do with all of that in that moment changes everything and you decided to forgive and therefore to free yourself yeah like do you see a connection with that in Juneteenth (laughs) (laughs) I do I mean it's vitally important for us as black people in this country to understand something like we have been wronged Mm -hmm. right we are still being wronged but hatred does not lead to solutions (laughs) Um, it does not lead to strategy Mm -hmm. you can't fight a situation if all of you are is angry right Mm -hmm. right strategizing and moving with love and with thought and with understanding that's the only way in which you fix these issues. And so, of course, again, back to the Juneteenth story, as you say, it's like love freed them, right? <laughs> the love of their people, mm-hmm. the love for their families, the love of God, the love of self, that love emancipated them. Because without that love, they would have just been bitter and then going around killing everybody they could find. And that was not what they wanted. They just wanted to live and be free. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can only get to that place out of a place of love because love leads you towards that direction. This is where you're from. I'm Rasul Berry. And remember, it's not just about where you're at. It's also about where you're from. This show was produced by Ryan Clevenger, Mary Jo Clark, and Jade Gusman, and was engineered by Kevin Burgess. Also want to thank Miss Joyce and Chris Cynthia for their help in supporting and promoting where you're from. Thanks, y'all, and happy Juneteenth. Where You're From is part of the Voices Collection from Our Daily Bread Ministries. This episode was brought to you in part by the Lord of Spirits podcast. Many Christians yearn to break free of the influence of secular materialism and to understand the union of the seen and unseen worlds as made by God. What is the spiritual world like? Tune in wherever you get your podcasts.